Be good. <laughs> Well, hello there. Welcome to Monkey Tooth. It's your pal Andrew here. With my wife, Tiffany, and our little dog, Pele, we're doing this podcast as we travel from California to Alaska down to Argentina. We've been on the road for a little over six months and uh, seven months. Wow. And we're back in California. We went all the way up to Alaska. We've done 16,000 plus miles in the past seven months. But due to a variety of unforeseen expenses, we're having to stop briefly and do some work so that we can get back on the road. Um, we're happy to do it. It's all part of the journey. Uh, so yeah, I've got a job, two jobs, one in Northern California and one in Southern California. And Tiffany has a job in Northern California. So we're going to be traveling back and forth and working our butts off until April, at which time we will hit the road again and go back to Mexico. But in the meantime, uh, we are continuing to meet people who do fun and interesting things. Um, I feel very fortunate in that way. And I, Uh, If you're listening to this, you are fortunate because you get to hear from our guest today, Ricky Cornell. Ricky is um, is just one of those women who is, just seems fearless to me. And maybe not even, maybe fearless isn't quite sum it up. She's just aware of what fear is and knows how to work with it, I think. Uh, She's a very brave lady who is smart and um, has all the good reasons in the world to be confident in her ability to navigate the world. Uh, she's a world traveler, uh, has been through hell and back, and um, and is just a cool, cool person. I got to spend Thanksgiving with her when I was in um, a little town outside of San Francisco this, this Thanksgiving, and it was the highlight of my trip. I absolutely fell in love with this lady and think she's just a cool, cool person, and uh, if you would like to, at the end of this, after you listen to her episode, reach out to her. Uh, she could probably use it. She has just recently fallen and broken her hip, and that breaks my heart because uh, she's such an active and fun, smart lady. To see her, picture her sitting in a hospital room convalescing uh, with this type of injury, just it's a bummer. So if you wanted to send her a note and wish her well or say what you thought about this episode... I think that'd be really sweet. I would love to pass those on to her. Uh, It'd be good to hear it from somebody else because I think I might have told her 10,000 times how much I liked her episode. But if you want to do that, you can write me a note um, to pass on to her. I don't want to just give out her email address, but I'll give mine, um, mtp.dog forward slash contact. Just drop me a line uh, and I will pass it on to Ricky. Anyhow, um, yeah, I I feel privileged to bring you this one. I hope you like it. Big thanks to our Patreon supporters. You are making our lives easier every day. We donated all the money from last month's Patreon support to um, fire relief efforts in Northern, or all over California, actually. Uh, But December, we're back on track to put that back in our pockets because we need it. So thank you, patrons. If you are interested in supporting this show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash monkeytooth. 
It really helps. And you can give like a buck a month. That's 12 bucks a year to say that you like this show. Uh, and you can leave us a review on iTunes. That would be helpful as well. All right. Um, there is a track list for every single episode that we've ever produced on our website, mtp.dog. There, uh, like for today's episode, you'll hear, you'll see a list of every song. You can even find places to go buy those songs if you're interested. Um, and there's a little write-up of who Ricky is and any link to anything we talked about. Uh, Ricky owns a great bar in San Francisco that you can actually go to and buy drinks. It's called Blondie's on Valencia Street in the Mission District. It's an institution, I guess. I've not been there, but I hear it's awesome. People really like it. So um, you ought to go there if you're in San Francisco. Go to Blondie's. Tell them you know you heard Ricky on a podcast. All right, guys, this is Ricky. I hope you love it as much as I did. And uh, like I said, send, send her a note via me, please. That would make me really happy if I got a just boatload of well wishes for her. Um, it's almost as good as flowers. All right. Love you guys. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. I was born 1940, May 1st, 1940. We have the same birthday. May the 1st. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. May 1st. May 1st. Oh, cool. Yeah, May Day. Another Taurus. May Day, baby. <laughs> That's cool. So May 1st, 1940. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, what, what neighborhood were you born? I was born in the Bronx in the Fordham Hospital, which no longer exists. And then I moved all around all the boroughs. I lived in all the boroughs in New York except Staten Island. Yeah. That was the one borough I didn't. didn't because as out. a kid when I was there, um, you had to take a ferry to, uh, to Staten Island. And it was... The uh, now there's the Verrazano Bridge. It's one of my favorite bridges on it, the planet. Really, I never, I never went over it. You still haven't gone over. It. No. no. What? When was that born or built? That was like the '60s. Or you something? know, I'm trying. No, 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 no. I think a, a lot later than the '60s. Really? I left New York in 1965 and came to San Francisco, and the bridge hadn't been built yet. Hmm. I think it was a big deal. I think it was probably built in the seventies, but really? you know, I can't be sure. I should really Google it and find out. What did your folks do? What were your parents doing? Well, my mother was an immigrant from Greece, mm. and my father was an immigrant from Turkey. And um, my mother um, was one of four children. She had a sister and two brothers who were. Uh, murdered by the Nazis, and my father was the youngest of thirteen sons. God bless my grandmother. Wow! <laughs> I don't know how, yeah. she, how she how she could do that? But anyway, he was the youngest, and it was his job to come to the United States and eventually bring over his brothers, of which he never did. Um, and. Uh, He, he was just a very selfish, indulged, self-indulged man. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, I always had this uh, need, even though at the time I didn't realize what what it was, you know, that I needed. So, because um, I wanted to know basically where I came from. I think we all do. I mean, that's why there's such a you know, rush to get your DNA now, you know, because, the, you know, we just want to connect. Yes. 
make the connection. Who are we? Where did we come from? You know, what are we supposed to be doing? Um, so I think uh, making that connection with your family, somehow you uh, decide where you fit in and what you're supposed to do. And without that connection, I mean, you're just like a floating. Yeah, adrift. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're adrift, yeah. I remember at that time, too, I used to have this recurring dream of, at that time, there was a, uh, a mustard seed floating in a encapsulated uh, uh, necklace, you know, that people wore in a necklace. And I had that dream of this mustard seed floating in the ocean. Wow. <laughs> Did you feel like you were the mustard seed? Um, I, I just uh, kind of observed that, and it always gave me an unsettled feeling because the mustard seed never reached a shore. It's just out there. Just out there. Uh, and I think uh, <laughs> if you look at today's world, that's what it feels like. Yeah, we're all a bunch of seeds adrift on a just adrift, not making the you know the human connection that we really yeah. need to make. Um, anyway, so you know, I just had that recurring dream, and mm. then I decided uh, that I was going to travel. So I started saving money when I was 16. And um, and then I made a pact with a girlfriend that we would travel together. Well, I never checked in with her and said, you know, I've got $100, I've got $200. And I was very poor, very poor, trust me. And um, somehow I scraped up over $600 uh, by the time I was kind of 18 and a half. And, um, and I said to this friend, let's go. Let's book a trip. Um, so, and she says, well, I don't have the money. And I said, well, I'm not waiting. I'm going. You know, <laughs> when I think about that now, it's like, oh my God, you know. Anyway, so I book a trip on a ship, it was the, the name of the ship was the Saturnia, it was an Italian ship. And at that time they actually had dormitory class, which they no longer have. Dormitory class was just bunk beds in the boiler room at that level of the ship. I mean, you were really in the, in the belly of the ship. And it was hot as hell and you heard them motors going all night long and I mean but anyway um, I'm getting uh, aside uh, so anyway I book a passage on that ship and I go down to the pier and get on the ship and my friend who I was supposed to travel with is on the pier kind of waving everybody's waving goodbye you know I mean you see that in the movies right and I suddenly realized I'm barely 19, 18 and a half. I'm scared. I'm actually terrified. But I can't get off the ship. It was already pulling away from the dock. And I just, from my guts, I kind of yelled to this friend, Maurice, Maurice, I'm scared. And she signals back to me. She said, 
paint pictures, draw pictures. And I just stood there and I realized what she was telling me. Because she was French, actually. And she said, and what she was telling me was, learn how else to communicate. There are other ways to communicate. And that was the first trip that I'd made um, uh, many other trips to come. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've done done some travel, but it, to your point, your first thing you brought up was about listening and how right. important it is to listen. You listened incredibly yeah. intently in that precious, quick moment. You don't have much time there as the ship is pulling away. And you heard something, you heard much more than just, hey, draw pictures. You heard this vast amount of communication that right. she imparted to right. you. That's the only way you, in certain situations, when you're in, in a, a situation where you're just terrified. Terrified, yeah. Terrified. How, uh, did, how did that trip go? I mean, I, clearly you're, you made it. I, I made it. Uh, we actually landed in Cadiz, which is the most southern point of, uh, of Spain. And I took a train from Spain to Madrid. And at that time... Uh, there was the what they call the um, uh, meeting places was uh, God I can't even remember what it was, but anyway, it was like the uh, the telegraph office where people would go send telegraphs and um, people would post different things and so I found a place to rent that had five bedrooms and being the slumlord that I am. <laughs> <laughs> you immediately began to sublet? I did. I rented Good the move. other um, the other bedrooms to uh, four other women from all parts of the world and and uh, in that and then one of the women that I rented the, a room to who I know now who has been a friend since then, uh, Margot Breyer, um and one day she came to me and she said, you know, Ricky, I've always wanted to go to Israel. <laughs> Which I'd never thought about, <laughs> even though I'm Jewish. And, uh, and she's Jewish also. And uh, I said, well, I got plenty of time and no money, so let's go. <laughs> and then we hitchhiked to Paris and hooked up with the Jewish agencies in Paris and got passage to uh, Israel. Yeah. Is the birthright thing? Is that, you can dial no, into that? No, no, no. Uh, At that time, it was just, the, they were kind of what they called the repatriating Jews. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, th was it 1960? This was 1959. 59. Wow. 59. What an interesting time. You know, time just 10 or 11 years after Israel became a state. State, yeah. So, um, so they were they, eager to get people there for any yeah. reason whatsoever. So we uh, went to two different kibbutzim. I went to one in the in the um, uh, in the uh, next to Tel Aviv, hmm. which was. I mean, now I see pictures of Tel Aviv. I can't believe it. I mean, then it was there was nothing, nothing. Yeah. Open no high-rises, no, you know, basically kind of Arab huts. And I went there to what was called an Ilpum, where they kind of taught you Hebrew and that kind of thing. And uh, 
and there I encountered a, a Holocaust survivor, German. That that kibbutz was run by Germans, who were ex, uh, a lot of them ex uh, Holocaust survivors. And uh, you know, I was a smart ass from New York, and had no understanding of what those people had gone through. But anyway, I got into it with one of the elders in the kibbutz, and he just, you know, looked down his nose on on me. I'm a Sephardic Jew. There's a, two main sects of Jews, Sephardics and Ashkenazis. He was clearly Ashkenazi. And I just got pissed off, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, my ancestors wouldn't piss on yours and then left the kibbutz <laughs> and then went to another kibbutz high up in the Galil in the mountains and and they were mostly um, uh, uh, American and Canadian Jews. I, I love that in your quest for finding out where you came from, you didn't lose your identity. You're like, you know what? This is who I am. <laughs> I'm trying to find out where I come from, but I know who I am. Don't push me around. I like that. That was kind of an interesting thing in the Cornell family. We were all put into foster homes, mm. me and my uh, siblings. But I always knew I was a Cornell. Mm. Always knew it and had a very deep connection to my siblings, Yeah, in particular my oldest brother. Um, but um, still that's, you know, people talk about yearnings or they have a passion for something. And it's way beyond, you know, logic. It's not logical. It's just like something you have to do. And at the time, I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. It was just, oh, you want to go to Israel? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I went. And we hitchhiked. <laughs> you know, up to the Pyrenees Mountains and then a quarter, uh, a ride from one of the truckers into Paris. And this friend of mine happened to be fluent in French, which was really interesting. And, of course, I was not. And then when we hit Paris, I had uncles in Paris, of which I hooked up with. And then hooked up with the Jewish agencies in Paris and then uh, went off to uh, Paris. I uh, went off to Israel. Um, and uh, then when I left Israel, when they called me into the army. <laughs> it's a good move. It's a very good move. Because things uh, started to get real weird in that army real well, quick. Not at that time. I mean, it was... Not many years later, though. It got... That was, uh, well, many years later, maybe. I mean, I don't know what the circumstances were, but I do know that I was in... Um, uh, when I was in one of the kibbutz, uh, which bordered Syria, I mean, it was... I mean, that was the first time I ever saw an Uzi. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first time that I heard missiles going off, 
off over my head all night long from the Syrians yeah. into the Israeli uh, kibbutz. Wow. There was not fire going from the Israelis to the Syrians. And there was a safe, a safe border, supposedly. But the Syrians always crossed into that, into the uh, kibbutz. I stayed in that kibbutz probably for about two weeks. And finally I said, hell, I'm getting my Jewish ass out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a question of, you know, you, you never know when one of those missiles or gunfire is going to hit you, you know being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. It happens over and over and over. And I just wasn't willing to take that chance. So I went to a kibbutz in the south, in the Negev, which was actually Ben-Gurion's kibbutz, and stayed there for uh, about three months. And that kibbutz was mostly um, uh, uh, Sephardic Jews, which have a whole different history than the Ashkenazi Jews. And um, and then when I got my <laughs> papers, my induction notice, actually, mm -hmm. which was in Hebrew, <laughs> and I went to one of the elders and said, you know, what's this? I said, well, you're in the army now. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, mm. And then I met my induction officer. I had to go into Haifa and... Uh, and I walked in, and of course I had my passport with me. And uh, she said to me, well, you know, you're going to go here or there. And of course, they're all fluent in English. Most of the Israelis were at least trilingual. They could speak Arabic, English, and uh, their country of origin, and of course Hebrew. Um, and I said to this induction officer in my innocence, I said... Um, I can't go into the army. And she said to me, and really, and why is that? I said, well, I'm a pacifist. She said to me, pacifist, pacifist. Hmm. She says, you know, we don't have that word in Hebrew. <laughs> I knew I was in deep shit. Yeah. And then I noticed that she had the tattoo on her arm from Auschwitz. I knew I was in trouble. Oh, she said to me, well, you'll learn lots of interesting things in the army, and, you know, it's a learning experience. And she went, and I said, yeah. And how to shoot a gun and crawl under a barbed wire fence. I said, you know, I'm not into it. And then I just got up to leave. And she said to me, hand over your passport, give me your passport. And now, you know, I'm an innocent kid. I don't realize consciously what that means but somehow I just looked at her and I said no fucking way Mosa 
And I got up, and she said, and that's when she said to me, all the borders will be closed to you. So I went to the telegraph office in Haifa, sent a telegram to my brother, who was very poor, had no money. I said, I need to get out of Israel. I need to, I need $200. He wired me, I don't know where the hell he got the money, but he wired me $200 I booked the first ship I could. I uh, didn't even go back to the kibbutz and left Israel that morning to Istanbul. And then, you know, I came back to New York two years later. And, uh, boy, coming back into the New York Harbor and seeing the Statue of Liberty. Oh. So I came back when I was... Uh, 21. Uh, saw your home with new eyes. Yeah. But the thing that happened that really uh, when I went to Istanbul I hooked up with one of my uncles on my father's side because on my mother's side her family was completely uh, murdered by the Nazis. And I know the history of Jews in, in uh, Turkey after the Inquisition and what happened. Anyway, the Spanish Inquisition. And um, I hooked up with this uncle. His name was Uncle Naftali, and his, my aunt's name was Sophia. Incredible people. And they had in the, uh, there is a, an underground bazaar or marketplace in Istanbul. Have you ever been there? I've not, no. It's a place you shouldn't miss. It's on my list. It is sure. absolutely extraordinary. It is the only place in the world where the East and the West met, mm -hmm. where there is an integration of both cultures. Yeah. Um, anyway, there is this underground uh, bazaar or marketplace where there's liter literally 4,000 outlets. I mean, it's just... <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like the Arabian Nights when you when you walk into this this bustling, hustling marketplace, uh, just extraordinary. Um, and uh, uh, my uncle had a shop there where he sold medical supplies. And of course, he spoke no English, and I spoke no Turkish, and I spoke uh, no Ladino. And uh, Ladino is um, the language of the Sephardic Jews. It is an actual um, hybrid of Hebrew and Spanish. Really? Spanish from the, from the 15th century, Cervantes' time. Yeah. And only the Sephardics speak that language. And, of course, I didn't speak it. My mother did. My father did, but I didn't, I didn't speak it. So... Um, we communicated 
in English with the very little bit of English that they spoke. And I had a cousin also, and, uh, and they, their only child. And I told him, uh, you know, that I was that I wanted to go back to the states, and uh, and he said to me, uh, uh, "Well, how are you going to get there?" I said, "Well, I'll hitchhike, and I'll go hitchhike, and I'll get to Italy." And, and he got <laughs> looked at. I mean, can you imagine the ignorance? <laughs> you know, I'm going to hitchhike from Istanbul. Yeah. to Italy and he was just appalled he said you can't do that and actually at that time you know women in Turkey did not go out alone yeah. and I had experienced that where I was assaulted um, when I left the ship you know I went from the hotel one night and I said you know I'm going to walk around Istanbul and and it was around five o'clock, five thirty, when everybody was getting, when the men were getting off work, they circled around me and started pushing me and punching me and yelling and screaming at me. Just for being out by yourself, well, for having the audacity. It's an Arab world. It's a Muslim world. Women didn't do that. Wow. I didn't know that. And somehow I broke away and made my way to the hotel, and then I found my uncle and stayed with him. Um, and um, he was the only uncle that stayed in Turkey. My other uncles uh, went to France, and actually, because uh, of our name, the Nazis didn't know about Sephardic Jews. Wow. So they were able to... to stay under uh, the radar. Yeah, that is an interesting... I would not have immediately associated Cornell with the Jewish... Right? Jewish name. Well, actually, my name originally, and it, it's actually on my sister's birth certificate, is Coronel. Coronel. Coronel, which huh. means colonel in yeah. Spanish. Yeah. And my family name goes back generations in Spain. Yeah. But when my father came over from Istanbul. Ellis Island. Ellis Island. Said, well, you know, Coronel will make you Coronel. Uh, Adelon? Yeah. No, we'll make you Harry. Right. So we became Harry Cornell. <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, I guess uh, that's the thing that saved my uncles. Yeah. But anyway, the other thing of that trip that really made it for me was one day my uncle says to me, uh, you have to go to your grandmother's grave. I said, "Oh, Uncle, no, I, I, I can't, I, I can't do that. Alberto is going to take me to the mosque and, uh, you know, and the other sites in Istanbul." And he looked at me, and he says, "No, you will go to your grandmother's grave. Do you understand?" And that was the first time in my life someone spoke to me like that. I said, yes, uncle, I will go. Anyway, <laughs> and sorry. <clears throat> I 
I saw history unfold in front of my eyes. Because in Istanbul at that time, the Jews were not allowed to be buried with the Christians and Muslims. So they had their own cemetery, which dated back 500 years. Um, and uh, when I went uh, with my uncle, we were driving down this road, and then these big wrought iron gates, I swear to God, I thought I was... <laughs> opened up, and then we went to my grandmother's uh, gravesite. Oh, what he said to me also, you will show respect to your ancestors. Respect to your ancestors, what is he talking about? <laughs> so there you kind of get the, that was my first introduction into understanding connection, you know, and and relating to your ancestors and however way you can. Uh, anyway, so we go to my grandmother's grave and um, my father always used to say to me, oh, you'll look just like your grandmother. But he always said it with disgust. Stain, yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyway, we go to my grandmother's gravesite and it was the tradition of Sephardic Jews to put the, um, uh, that they would engrave in, in stone uh, the faces of the deceased. And uh, it was really uncanny because I looked at her and I was looking at myself. And not only that, but I even wore my hair the same way that she did, that was in her depiction on her tombstone and I stood there and I looked at it and I said I understand in that instant I understood where I came from I mean I, I knew who I was but I didn't know where I came from and that's a, that's the big difference an enormous difference hmm? that's an enormous difference oh yeah yeah definitely you have to know who you come from. It kind of gives you, I don't know, it's, you know, the, like, 
we were talking this morning about uh, reincarnation and the afterlife, and somehow that gives, in that moment, even though I at, at, at that point I had not had any psychic experiences, but somehow it kind of gives you that that porthole, that portal into that existence, into that world, you know? Uh, so, and I've always said, you know, if you've not had any uh, psychic experiences or if you're not open to those experiences, you can't really understand in a, in a way that that world exists. So I, I do think that the world exists. But it was at that moment that I made that connection into that world. Sounds like it had a pretty profound impact on, on the way yeah. you perceived yourself. I mean, do you have grandparents? I do, yeah. Well, they're not living anymore, but... Did you have any connection to them? You know, I, I never met my grandfather um, on my mom's side. I met <laughs> my grandfather on my father's side, uh, but I was very young when they when they passed i did have a really good connection with my grandmother she passed when i was about 13 uh, and she was such a sweet and kind and loving woman uh and a nurse like my mother and like, like my wife and your wife yeah yeah right. so I've, I've always had this like kind of connection with, with these caretaker type people who are selfless and very interested in the wellness of people so right i kind of know where <laughs> where i come from on that on that front yeah and it's profound. I think yeah. that's probably why you have such a deep connection with your wife. You know, because it goes back to your grandmother. Yeah, that's interesting. I would not thought of that. Mm. It's like a continuation of that relationship. So, I wanna... it, it, Because it's something... It, we as humans really need that deep connection with our spouses, with our siblings, with our friends, you know, if we're lucky enough to find that in our lives. And the ones that don't, it's sad. The fact that you went looking, I think is, um, it shows an insight in your part that you had the, the insight and the foresight to go look for that sort of thing. Uh, you were in foster homes? I really homes? didn't. No, I really didn't. It was just this need uh, to see the world. You know, I was fortunate enough to be born in New York City where you're constantly exposed to other people, other cultures, um, other languages. I mean, you name it. Yeah. So from early on, and not only that, but I was raised by my foster mother was French. And she actually lied to the Jewish agencies to, uh, she was a Catholic. And uh, she gave up her Catholicism through a very, very tragic, tragic accident that took her only son and her husband. And then uh, she just walked away from it. She said, no. When the priest wanted to be paid before he performed the services, she just said this, you know, I'm done. So she took Jewish force, the children, and I was one of them um, with two of my brothers. Um, 
So I was constantly exposed to other people, other ways of life. So it was from that that, you know, there was that curiosity along with the need to find something that I wasn't even sure what what I was going to find. And that's the greatest adventure. You know, when you set foot, when you go out and do something and you just have no idea what you will encounter. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, yes. I mean, look at your past travels, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that you interviewed and how that has enriched your life or your understanding. Very much. Very yeah. Much. It's the gift. Those unexpected things that you... Whatever it is you thought you were looking for, it's the other things that you run across and that... That really startled you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how, let me let me back up just a little bit. How did you get out of Istanbul? Oh. How did you get back to my the My uncle, God bless his soul, gave me a, a train ticket because I had to um, pick up my ship in Genoa to come back to the States, which was... Oddly enough, an Israeli ship, Zim Lines. <laughs> I mean, you think of the irony, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, I told him, I says, Uncle, I have to get to Italy um, to get my ship back home. Yeah. So he bought me a train ticket. Wow. From Istanbul, it went through Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and Italy. And boy, was that a that was a lesson in in um, in politics. I can only imagine. Whoa! When we went through uh, Bulgaria, it was so poor. Oh my God! It, Bulgaria is freezing. I was went back. Uh, I think when did I get back into the states? Uh, the only thing I remember about Bulgaria was the, th- the thatched houses and the absolute gut-wrenching poverty. And um, when the uh, police came on the train to check your passports, everybody there was terrified of the police. Terrified. There was a rug merchant that came on that literally broke into a sweat when the uh, um, policeman asked for his credentials. No one talked to each other. Everybody sat there like this. Wouldn't look at each other. No eye contact. Then we hit Yugoslavia, uh, Sofia. And um, things, the Yugoslavians had a better political system, obviously. I mean, at that time, Bulgaria was under Russia. Right. It was part of the um, USSR. The USSR, yeah. yeah. And uh, Yugoslavia was not. I think they were, uh, or maybe not quite. But anyway, things loosened up. Yeah. With the in the Yugoslavia people began to talk to each other, and then they were, we're talking about trust here, you know. Uh, so, and then we hit. Uh, you know, when the border police came on and checked your passport and everything, it was, you didn't see that fear. Yeah. Um, then when we hit the uh, Italian border, <laughs> holy shit. Oh, man. 
you know, the Italian police came on. Hey, come stai? You know, and then the salamis <laughs> came out and the wine and the cheese and everybody shared. And yeah. I mean, it was like, God, did I just leave hell and come into heaven? Yeah. <laughs> and then I hit Genoa and uh, just stayed on the street for a couple of days until my ship came in and got on the ship and came into New York. Wow. So uh, I'm wondering, I want to connect that past, that traveling, that searching, and that love for people and your, um, I don't know, desire to be exposed to so many people and your current life as the owner of Blondie's. <laughs> I feel like there's got to be a connection. Well, it's just how, a how did you? Yeah, how'd you end up um, at Blondie's? Well, it was really... Um, when I hit New York, I had no skills when I came back, zero skills. Well, I was a, uh, a secretary prior to that. I actually worked, before I went to Europe, uh, I worked for United Artists in their ad um, department, their advertising department. I was a terrible secretary. I, I fucking hated it, being cooped up in this little cubicle and... Yeah. I'd look out, you know, up on the hundredth floor or whatever, and and then run down at lunchtime to get uh, some a quick lunch because you just had a half hour, and uh, run back up again into oblivion, and I hated that. So there was no way in hell I was going to do that again. Yeah. Um, so when I came back, you know, I mean, what was open to me? I became a waitress. And uh, then I went to uh, culinary school uh, when I came to the West Coast. Actually, I met my first husband in New York, and he didn't want to stay in New York, even though he was a New Yorker. He said, I want to go to the West Coast. And I said, well, what the hell? What year was this? Uh, this was uh, 1964. Um, and then uh, uh, I had a great brain control department. I mean, this was very unique because most of the brain control apartments were just out and out slums. Um, but anyway, uh, I uh, packed up what I could and we drove to uh, uh, LA, hated it. And then uh, we drove to San Francisco hooked up with some friends of mine that were from the East Village that had an apartment in the Mission District of where I am now. Yeah. Um, and found an apartment and got a job. And that's where I met Lala. You guys have been friends for 50 plus years. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. So when we were talking before, you know, when you meet someone, you just know, you click and why do you click? I mean, because you don't know anything about that person at the time. Huh. And when I met Lala, you know, we just clicked. And uh, then I met her husband, Derek. Uh, <laughs> Somewhat was, less clicking. <laughs> uh, no, there was no clicking there. Yeah. Grading, grinding of gears, perhaps, I but not clicking. I never liked the guy. Mm. Never liked him. Mm. 
but I put up with him because he was her choice. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, 30 years later, you know the drill. All right. But so 30 years or 20 years later, you opened your own bar. Uh, well, actually, we worked for the topless clubs on Broadway in San Francisco. We were never topless. We were the service. We were too smart. <laughs> and we made fantastic money. We're talking the 60s, where I'd walk out of those clubs with three, $400 in my pocket. In my 60s. rent was $80. Yeah. So that gives you some idea. Yeah. Um, you had a chance to build. Yeah. So I decided, you know, I don't want to be an employee. I want to be the boss. Mm-hmm. So I saved my money. And um, I opened up, um, you know, your life is just full of so many chances. I mean, so many things happened that don't make any sense. But, you know, in later years, you look back and you say, you know, you know, why did I do that? So anyway, here I was working as a cocktail waitress and uh, my husband at the time uh, shipped out, worked on ships. And uh, when he was working on this one ship, he was one of the deckhands, which is a very physical job because you actually have to tie in the ship with rope, right? And uh, he worked on uh, cruise ships, but he came across this young guy that was a vegetarian. And he noticed that he was the only guy that in the deckhand, that, of the deckhands, that never got tired. So he said to him one day, how come you never break a sweat? How come you never get tired? They were the same age. And uh, the guy said, well, you know, I don't eat anything that's bad for me. I don't do drugs. I don't do any of that stuff. He says, you know, I'm a vegetarian. So my husband at that time said, vegetarian? How does that go? You know, so (laughs) being a big meat eater. Anyway, so he took it up and he comes home and off of that ship and I had just gone shopping and bought, you know, beef, veal, lamb, you name it. And uh, so I was preparing dinner and he said to me, I'm not going to eat that. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm vegetarian. I said, you're a what? (laughs) Uh, This is 1967. 1967. So, um... I said, you're a vegetarian? He says, yeah. And I don't know what it was, but I decided to go to the Yellow Pages, that's when they had Yellow Pages, and look up vegetarian anything. And at that time, there was two vegetarian stores, uh, which was 
nothing like what they are now. Trust me. So I go into this one store on Polk Street. Two sisters own this store. They were both fat. Bad skin. Dyed hair. Easily in their 50s. And there was nothing fresh in the store. Everything was packaged. Packaged cookies, vitamins, just total crap. And that did not say to me, life. So I walked out of the store with my husband. He was with me. I said, well, I'll tell you just one thing. If that's what vegetarians do for you, I'm not having it. <laughs> but something stirred me on. I went back to the Yellow Pages, and in the Yellow Pages, there was this full-page ad that said, New Age Natural Foods. I said, well, that's kind of interesting. So I go out there. It's this little store on 9th Avenue in the Sunset District, and I walk into the store, and it's all hippies. There was fresh produce, a book section. I don't remember any vitamins, no vitamins, just fresh food. So on the cash, we're on the register area, there are these books for sale. And one of the books was um, The Poisons in Your Food. Hmm. It was written in 1948 by uh, 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 an author called William Longgood. I'm sure it's out of print now. I picked it up and I read it, which was not the kind of books that I usually read because it was all facts about the, um, uh, the uh, pesticides and when it started and how it started and what it does to your health. And this is, you know, 1967. Well, when I read the book, I was outraged. Outraged. And I said, these motherfuckers, who the hell did they think they are? You know, poisoning the world. So I had saved some money from my waitressing days. I said, I'm going to open my own natural food store. So I went back, <coughs> kind of weekly, and then I met the owner. <coughs> His name was Fred Rowe, R-O-H-E. And I went up to him and I said, you know, I'd really like to open a natural food store in North Beach. Will you help me? He said, of course, sure, whatever you need. Wow. And he did. And I opened my first natural food store in North Beach in 1968. And then I opened the second one in 70. And uh, that's how I kind of got into the food. Uh, but I'd already gone to culinary school, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I, in my second store, I actually opened the first natural foods restaurant or cafe in San Francisco, and wow. that was in 1970. And uh, 
That was interesting because I had to get organic food. Uh, and uh, that was my first introduction to raw, unpasteurized food, uh, cheese. Yes. Very uh, I actually got sausage from Canada that was made from um, deer meat. I got uh, uh, tuna fish from uh, Oregon that was a uh, line court tuna fish. Chuck's Cannery, which is still there, by the way. Um, so that was a very interesting experience. So, you know, the thing that I'm saying is my journey is not unusual. Everybody has, oppor everybody has opportunity. But you have to decide whether you're going to take advantage of that or ignore it. Because, you know, the old saying that opportunity only knocks once, it's not true. It knocks many times. But unfortunately, a lot of people ignore it. And there's something about being quick to the door when that knock comes. You know, you definitely get up off your ass and answer that door the moment it knocks. I don't think you wait for that second knock. But, I mean, if you look over, you know, like I said, you know, looking back is easy, retrospect is easy. Um, it's hindsight is twenty twenty, But at the time, uh, it just didn't seem that way. Mm. Uh, you know, like you said this morning, everybody has a unique story. And that's true. Everybody does. Uh, and everybody's story has value. Mm -hmm. It just depends on, you know, where you're coming from and how you're going to, like Lolly this morning said, uh, you know, she just doesn't get the whole thing of homosexuality that she feels it's unnatural. But that's, you know, as I told her, I think that's a very narrow perception of the world because what if you know nature put that intact in place to keep the population down does doesn't that have value of course it does there's i mean interesting questions to ask about what is natural and what is not natural? How do you even define that? Yeah, Look at what's going on now in the marketplace, the total deception and deceit around what is natural yeah. by the food producers. You know, this is natural, this is organic. Yeah, You know, a, that is total crap. Yeah, and the, a trick. the newest one that really pisses me off is sustainability, mm. especially around the fishing industry. Yeah. I went into my local deli, uh, that uh, organic place, uh, grocery store, and they have a deli and they have a big section on fish and it's sustainable and wild and, you know, and that's the buzzword, sustainable. And I finally, I've been shopping there for some time and I got really pissed off. I said, you know, there's a time 
and th- these guys are holier than thou. <laughs> you know, they're organic and uh, and they have their own farm and you know it's sustainable and blah blah. So anyway, I said I want to speak to the manager. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the guy comes and I said, "This is a lie. This is a total." deception he says well you know he kind of gets his haunches up and he says well what are you talking about i said there is nothing sustainable about that fish farms are dangerous they pollute the wild uh, population and they pollute the ocean and there is nothing sustainable about that so he said, well, you know, we want to be able to give people a choice. I said, fine, but don't, don't, say, don't say that it's sustainable. Yeah. Say that it's farmed. Yeah, be honest. Just be honest. Mm. So, you know, there's all kinds of buzzwords like that in, in food production. Oh, this is natural. Oh, really? What's natural about it? Well, it's organic. Well, everything's organic that grows. Right. You know, it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's total deception. So, so is that what part of what led you into the bar business? A more honest? No, actually, uh, it was just the kind of. Um, I had a restaurant on the on the waterfront, um, on Pier Fifty, right next door to AT and T Park, and. Uh, you know, we have to. We had to lease the premises from the city, and oh, it, that's a nightmare. And it just got to the point where I said, you know, I can't do this because, again, this incredible deception on the part of the city, mm-hmm. uh, unbelievable. Uh, raw sewage was actually coming into my restaurant and kitchen, yeah. and of course, I did the right thing. You know, I hired plumbers and redid the pipes and underneath the pier because the restaurant was actually over water and uh we did all the plumbing inside the restaurant and bar and and uh and uh um even had one of these guys come out with roto rooter and clean all the lines and um and uh, then i even got a roto rooter to photograph inside and then what came up was that the actual um, uh, pipes, sewage pipes, which was outside of my property, which was on city property, was broken. And I had hired a marine engineer also who told me exactly what was going on. And uh, um, so we went to the pier and uh, to the Port Authority and uh, said, hey, listen, uh, you know, I need to get a, uh, um, a drawing of the, uh, of the sewage system they said, oh, we can't do that. We can't have that. I said, really? And why is that? I said, you have to have them someplace. Oh, he said, well, you know, that sewage system was put in over 100 years ago. We don't have <coughs> any record of that. I said, listen, you guys are on the waterfront. Are you telling me that there is no diagrams of the sewage system that you maintain Every day of every year? Uh, yeah. 
I said, that's bullshit. That's a total lie. So what they were doing was they wanted to make sure that I would not um, uh, sue them because of their malfunction um, in terms of yeah. taking care of their property. And how many female business owners were operating around that? Uh, at that time, uh, there, there were 1,200 leases on the waterfront and only two were women-owned, me and the Aliotos. It's a man's world out there, let me tell you. Yeah, I and mean, that's... Um, but I'm trying to get to, to how you ended up with Blondie's because oh. it's, it's, you got this institution that I'm so curious about. Well, actually... Um, When I came back from Canada, I was living in Canada for 10 years where I had a restaurant and bar. And, <clears throat> I mean, that was, I lived on a small island called Salt Spring Island in the Love British Salt Columbia. Spring. Love Salt Spring. We were just Have there. Have you been there? Yeah, yeah, we were just there. Yeah, we had a great time in Salt Spring. Well, that's where I had my restaurant and bar. Yeah, that's really cool. On Soul Spring on McPhillips Avenue. So cool. And um, uh, that's another whole story how I got there and I can opened imagine. up that restaurant. But anyway, when I divorced my husband there and moved back to San Francisco, um, uh, I had had some money from, from the sale of my uh, restaurant. And... Uh, I also had a friend here in San Francisco. At that time, my money hadn't come through, and I was working as a cocktail server in um, one of the hotels, and I came across this other server, a, a guy. And uh, I said, you know, I'm kind of looking around for a restaurant or a cafe, um, um, not really a restaurant. I didn't want to go into that again because the, the hours were... Brutal. Murderous. Yeah. Absolutely brutal. And uh, I wanted to look for something uh, where you didn't have to be there 24-7. So uh, Nobby, his name was Nobby, he said, well, you know, I know about this bar that's for sale. I said, really? He said, yeah, it's a pretty neat bar. It's in the Mission District, which was a terrible district at the time. And um, I said, uh, really? It's just a bar. No food. He said, no, no food, just a neighborhood bar. I said, well, take me there. So I walked in, looked around, and I decided I was going to buy it. So I went to my, because I didn't have any money yet, I went to this friend long-time friend from when Lawler and I were um, cocktail waitresses in the, in the topless bars. I'd met uh, Anatole, and we had a long history by that time, and I told him, I said, listen, Anatole, um, I want to buy this bar in the Mission District. Um, uh, do you want to be partners with me? And I need some money to put down on the bar. He says to me, how much do you need? 
I said, well, I need $50,000. He wrote me a check. Yeah, he'd visited me up in Canada, saw my restaurant. I mean, he, and he knew me from my, uh, when we were both uh, uh, active in our union. You know, I was a, a union rep and he was the lawyer for the union. Uh, so we had a long history. Yeah. And, you know, when he lent me the 50000 he said, here. And I, that's when I bought the bar. Yeah. And one of the first things I did, I mean, that neighborhood was drug and, and actually the license on that bar was in rev, revocation. So I bought, bought it just in time. Uh, and uh, it was uh, mostly, um, uh, it was an underground neighborhood. Lots of bookstores, lots of bars. Um, I looked around, and it had two main uh, BART stops on it, lots of transportation, and I knew on a gut level that that neighborhood would be turned around. I knew it. Just knew it. Everything was there to turn it around. So the first thing I did when I bought the bar was uh, I changed the jukebox. So I put in uh, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, I put in a, a lot of country, um, uh, blues, um, just a pretty good mix mm -hmm. uh, to draw a different crowd, and it worked. And, and then still, I put in a dance floor. Yeah, live music, right? You you got a license uh, to play live music up there. Yeah, I built a stage and I put in a, a dance floor. Uh, I'm on um, Valencia Street between 16th and 17th, right in the heart of the Mission yeah. District, which is very different now than it was then, obviously. I can imagine. But, uh, it was an underground neighborhood there, and uh, there were cheap rents, so did, a lot of the... Did you buy the building as well? I did. Uh, later on, I bought the building wow. uh, about six months later. That's great. That's great. Yeah, uh, because... <laughs> yeah, forget I, it. Huh? Forget, it. Forget it now if you had to pay rent to... Oh, for, uh, well, I would be out of business. Yeah. There's no way that I could pay the, the current rents. No. Yeah. Wow. It's not possible. Um, so thank God I had the foresight then to uh, buy the building. Yeah. From corrupt son of a bitch, but... <laughs> You've been in business for over 30 years? Well, actually 29 years. 29 Another year, it'll be 30 years. Thank you so much for for sitting with me. and It was fun. Sharing this little Actually bit of your Actually kind of uh, going down memory lane. Up a lazy river where the old mill run Meets a lazy river in the noonday sun Lingering in the shade of a kind old tree And you throw away your troubles in the dream up a lazy river with a robin song Wakes a bright new morning we can loaf along Blue skies above and everyone's in love Up a lazy river how happy we can be Oh, a river with me Up a lazy river where the old mill ran Meets the lazy river in the noonday sun Linger in the shade of a kind old tree And you throw away your troubles 
Dream a dream of me. Dream a dream of me. Fill up the lazy river where the raven song wakes you bright in morning. We can over long blue skies above. And everyone's in love up the lazy river. How happy we can be. The river. Lazy river, lazy river, lazy river. Hi, Tiffany here saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An About tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a Van Build tab, detailing how we did our van conversion. A Journal tab, and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab, where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all. Tree, and you throw away your trouble dream between you and me. I'm a laser